Sit back, kids. Nestle in for a very special episode of Babe. <laughs> it's like a 70s after school special, but without Rob Lowe, who can still get it, by the way. Unbelievable. He is still hot and he's like 55 years old. Rob Lowe is hot and can still get it. Okay, not what this episode is about. What is this episode about? There was a great episode of the Flintstones where I don't know whose anniversary it was, but they sang happy anniversary, happy anniversary, happy anniversary, happy anniversary. And I keep thinking that I keep hearing that in my head because it's August and it's it's becoming late August. And it's it's the five year anniversary of me <laughs> sliding into the, one of the darkest points of my entire life. So everything reminds me of it. The the smell outside of the fresh cut grass, the heat and the humidity remind me of it. The way the light shines through the blinds in the morning at 6 a.m. reminds me of it. Uh, and with that comes that sort of creeping anxiety, the creeping, the creeping depression that I like to call the Babadook. Have any of you seen The Babadook? It's a 2014 Australian film. It's a horror film. It's a very smart terrifying horror film uh, about a boogeyman named the Babadook. And the Babadook is uh, sort of a turn of the century, 1900-ish type character with a top hat and a long black coat and and a, a hideously carved Cheshire cat grin all the time. And uh, he's always he's always lurking, and this woman Amelia, who's lost her husband, uh, is raising her son and uh, finds a book called The Babadook. It's a, an alleged child's book. It's the most fucking horrifying child's book I've ever seen. Who would make such a book for a child? But anyway, The Babadook starts to come to life for her and, and haunt her and change her. And there's sort of like the good Amelia, the good mom, and then there's like the Babadook version of her that, that actually drives her to do some pretty insane things. Uh, and once you think The Babadook is gone... The movie sort of has this twist ending where uh, you, I think they're at a birthday, a backyard birthday party for the little boy and Amelia excuses herself and goes down into the basement where now the Babadook lives and she feeds him. I think she feeds him worms, uh, but she's learned to sort of build this relationship with the Babadook. Like it wasn't defeated. She's actually welcomed it into her home and where it lives and she feeds it. And I was so I remember leaving the movie thinking, now, what the fuck was that about? <laughs> so as as I used to always do, I went on to the IMDb uh, chat pages, the, the, the comments sections, which has now been replaced for me by the Reddit official pages to try to figure out what the fuck I just saw. And it turns out and I wasn't as. I was really scared, so I wasn't really picking up on, I wasn't savvy to the fact that the Babadook represented her loss and grief and her depression. And uh, instead of trying to will it away, she learned to live with it uh, and make it a part of who she was, actually feeding it at one point, which was crazy to me. So uh, the Babadook is, uh, it's a great movie. It's uh, the ending really threw me because I have spent an entire lifetime 
trying to live without depression, to live without anxiety. And the, the concept of saying, hey, you know what, it's, it's with me all the time. I've heard depression likened to a black dog. If you, if you look that up, uh, you can find like the black dog of depression. It's always sort of with you. Uh, and, you know, anxiety and depression make me who I am. And it's unfortunate because I'm heavily medicated at, <laughs> at all times. And I wish I wasn't on so many meds, but I am on uh, quite a few uh, antidepressants and anti-anxiety meds. And they, they keep me head above water. So uh, why did I just decide to do an accent right there? <laughs> you know how suddenly people with uh, depression want to do cockney accents oh jesus but anyway it's it's around that time that the babadook starts to rear his head and uh in the movie you can hear the babadook say babadook duck duck and i i usually start to get the babadook at night when um the sun is going down because it used to represent to me the fact that I was going to have to get up the next day and I was not capable of doing that. And I just wanted, uh, I don't know, some sort of relief. And the night was not comforting to me because it always ended with that glow at 6am glow. And would I have to call into work? How would I, how can I get out of leaving my bed, uh, today? And so I've been feeling anxious and and not knowing really what to do. Uh, I don't have time right now to to welcome anxiety in and feed it. Uh, I certainly don't have time for uh, depression. And you know, now that I'm a dad, uh, I really want to. I want to normalize anxiety and depression. I suspect that Jackson uh, may be prone to anxiety and depression as well, genetically. And I want him to know there's no shame in it and that it's an illness like any other. And that daddy also suffers from, uh, I'm not even going to say suffers from that's, I hate that word. I forget. I said that I'm not editing it out. Cause I want you to hear that I made a mistake. Uh, I also live with the Babadook. I live with depression and anxiety. And so going back to that time, right after I, uh, got out of the uh, psychiatric hospital that I checked myself into, uh, I wrote about it. And I thought it would be really good to kind of go back and revisit that experience. Because I think that around this time of year, I sort of dread driving by that psychiatric center. I think about what it was like to be inside. I, I hope that I'm never there again. And uh, it's just an odd time for me. So in, in an effort to normalize this and to sort of share with you who may not have been with me around that time, I'm going to read to you what I wrote about it. I wrote it in installments, a series, if you will, but I'm going to read the whole thing and you can just listen to it and then pause in between so you can guess what's going to happen to me. Clearly, I, I everything's fine. Everything turned out okay. But uh, I, I wrote about it in a blog that I used to write, Me on a Diet. And I loved writing in this blog. I, I wrote in the blog for three th more than three years. And I wrote uh, pretty prolifically. And I wrote well, I think. I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give myself a little bit of credit there. And then after I wrote about being in the psychiatric hospital, I, I suddenly stopped writing. <laughs> I felt like, you know what, My, I've said it all now. So that's why I thought having a podcast would be so good. It's a, wholly, a whole different way to express myself. And so anyway, I'm going to read to you this 
just like David, pretend, pretend I'm David Sedaris. I'm your very own in-house David Sedaris. I haven't looked at this, so I'm sort of, sort of a cold reading. But I'm going to read to you, a la David Sedaris. And hopefully that works out. Is this cheating? Am I cheating? Uh, it's, it's old material, but it's new to a lot of you. And it really uh, might speak to someone right now. So uh, yesterday... I went to throw on what I call my cozies, my sweatpants, and a t-shirt. I reached down to tie the drawstring, and it wasn't there. There are no drawstrings in any of my sweatpants anymore. That's because they were all cut out when I was admitted to Brylin Psychiatric Hospital. Uh, It's not even a mile from where I live. Drawstrings of any kind were forbidden, as were earrings, plastic knives, or even the staples in magazines. Clearly, people had tried to kill themselves with staples in the past, so you had to remove them from the magazines. No sharps of any kind. They even had me rigorously shake out my hair in front of two nurses, it was humiliating, who were examining me from head to toe, lest I harbor a hairpin or a chisel or a saw in my tresses. The absence of the drawstring brought me back to the day I decided that I couldn't do this anymore, especially on my own. I needed help. I needed to be in the hospital. Uh, my, my clothes, well, I don't wear the clothes that I wore five years ago, but there are some vestiges left of no drawstrings. Um, and it reminds me of this. This was literally months of depression and anxiety that turned me into a person I didn't know, a person that no one knew. My voice was weak. I was losing muscle tone. I had stopped showering. I had stopped eating. I could not sit still. The only thing I could tolerate was lying in bed. I didn't want to live anymore. Not like that, anyway. When I called the hospital to see what I had to do to get myself admitted, the woman I was speaking to asked if I wanted to die, which you don't hear every day on the phone. Uh, Sort of. I mean, I don't want to live, per se, but I don't exactly want to off myself. Like, if I didn't wake up tomorrow morning, that'd be okay. I landed on that. She asked me if I had a plan to end my life, and I did not. I thought, well, if I had a plan, would that get me into the hospital? I didn't have plans for anything at all. I was just desperate for someone to end what I was going through. I had been asleep for four months. It was time to wake the fuck up. For some reason, I thought the mental hospital would be less clinical and more like Canyon Ranch, which is a spa and health resort in the Berkshires. I thought that I'd have my own room, my own beautifully tiled shower, meals brought to my bedside, and an IV connecting me to the right meds at the right dose right away. I thought I would just lie there waiting for someone to fix me. A team of specialists revolving in and out of my room continuously with clipboards. I thought wrong. The woman from the hospital told me simply, no cell phones, no shoelaces, don't bring more than $5, no hoodies. Well then... I was too rattled to ask her any more questions other than what time to be there. She said that they'd be ready for me at 6.30 p.m. I had to also let people know that I was doing this. Like, hi, I'm checking myself into a mental hospital. I packed some sweatpants and t-shirts and a little bag of toiletries. I took out my earring. They were also not allowed, lest I kill myself with an earring. Uh, I plugged my cell phone into the charger. I could not bring it. I had arranged for my mom to pick me up and take me and my husband, Eric, to the hospital. Just a mile from my house. Less. This was it. I, Sean Doyle Jr., was headed to the bin. Hey, remember that time you had to enumerate all the drugs you've ever done in your entire life? How old you were and for how long? In front of your mother. 
Yeah, (laughs) I do. This was not going well. The intake process took hours from a multitude of questions about suicidal thoughts to whether or not I engaged in unprotected sex in front of my mother. Oh, the shame. I answered about a million questions that night. I kept looking back at Eric and my mom, who were sitting quietly behind me. Was I doing the right thing? Could they fix me here? Part of me wanted the intake process to go on forever because I knew I would have to say goodbye to my beautiful husband and my kind, caring mother, and I would be alone. Now, keep in mind, I, ch- I chose to do this. I, I asked to be there. Not only would I be alone, but I would be locked in and unable to leave at will. I remembered truly how horrific the last months had been. The panic, the leaving work early because I could not stand it anymore. I just knew it was something I had to at least try. The last resort. This was of my choosing. The time came for me to head up to the second floor. My mom and Eric could come with me, but could only stay for a few minutes. We were led to the elevator by a really nice guy named Philippe. Ah, Philippe, you have no idea what you're in for. It was about 10.30 p.m., and the reality of what was happening started to overwhelm me. When the elevator door opened, we stepped out into what would become my home for the next week. A psych ward. A mental hospital. The bin! Saying goodbye to Eric and my mom happened very fast. Philippe only gave us about a minute or two before they had to go. The level of crying I was about to achieve was epic. Watching the elevator door close, seeing my mom and Eric both standing there crying was more than I could take. After the door closed, Philippe said, you seem like a really nice guy. You're going to be okay in here. I was completely breaking down. I had never been so scared or felt so alone. All I had was Philippe. Because I live so close to Brylin, I had driven by hundreds of times. And every time I drove by, my head would turn and I'd wonder what kind of people were inside. Crazy people? Violent people? I knew it was a psychiatric hospital, and it fascinated me. Now I was about to find out. I was on the inside looking out. Didn't know how long I'd stay or when I would get out. When would I see my sweet Eric again? My parents. Could they find the old me? When was I going to see me again? I've decided to tell this story in installments because, A, it's too long a story for one giant blog entry, and no one has that kind of time, and B, I want to tell this story carefully. I want to give the experience the respect it deserves. Being in the hospital was at once terrifying, desolate, hysterical, and even fantastical. Funny shit happened in there. Transformative shit. I want you to know about it. I've been on the outside looking in, and now from the inside looking out, too. Seeing things from both sides has changed me. Please stay with me, and I'll tell you what it was like. I have a lot to say. Hi, everybody. It's me, present day Sean. So you have a choice now. You can pause this and then listen to the next part tomorrow, or you can keep going. I've never done this before in this particular format, so I hope that it's okay. I hope you like it. The next part, part two, is called Nowhere to Hide. Philippe gave me a tour and I clung to him as he showed me the kitchen, the lounge, and the shower, none of which looked like a kitchen, a lounge, or a shower I had ever seen before. They were like something out of the institutions you heard about in the 1970s. Very Willowbrook, very cuckoo's nest. We went into a small room where I answered even more questions, one of which was, how would you like to be sedated if ever you lost control? A shot, physical restraints, time alone in a quiet room, Guess which one I chose. Once the questions were done, I was led to my room. 
This was not Canyon Ranch. The room was A, almost completely dark because someone was already sleeping in it, and B, almost empty except for two single beds and one dresser. Bare walls. Smelled like urine. The dude in the bed next to mine and I were not separated by a glorious Japanese partition like in my hospital fantasy or even a curtain. There was literally nowhere to hide. We had to share a bathroom with the two men in the adjoining room, and the shower was down the hall. Keep that in mind. The mattress and pillows were made of rubber, and as that sunk in, I reminded Philippe that I slept with a CPAP machine because I'm super fucking sexy and glamorous uh, because I had sleep apnea. He let me know that since I had the machine, someone was going to have to sit in the doorway while I slept so I wouldn't either hang myself with the hose or cord or my roommate wouldn't try to use it to kill me. What the fuck? Damn you, sleep apnea. I mean, come on. Sweet dreams. So there I was lying on a rubber mattress with nothing to separate me from my psychotic roommate who may or may not kill me in my sleep with my fucking CPAP machine. This psychotic just happened to be very attractive, I'll have you know, but that didn't make it any better at the time. And so I began to weep. I wept for hours, and these tears were coming from somewhere inside me that I had never been, despite the hot roommate. At 6.30 in the morning, the woman who has been watching me sleep came to my bed and said, the doctor wants to see you first. At 6.30 in the fucking morning? Not for nothing, but doesn't everybody sort of want to kill themselves at 6.30 in the morning? <laughs> the psychiatrist was sitting right across the hall from my horrible room. I would see him every day. Now this is living, I thought to myself. What a treat! He asked me if I wanted to die. I sort of wanted to say yes, because only two minutes ago I was sound asleep. And now I'm talking to a total stranger wearing the clothes I had on yesterday about suicide. But I just told him that I didn't want to live anymore, not necessarily impose harm. I told him my medication was no longer working. My own psychiatrist and I were on a carousel of going on new meds, coming off an old med, going on a new med, starting yet another med. He let me know that if I didn't respond to medication, that electroconvulsive therapy, ECT, was always an option for me. You're telling me this at dawn on my first morning in the bin? I thought they'd save that for like day two or later in the day. Could a lobotomy be far behind? I was so tired, though. All I could do was nod and say, okay, to electroshock therapy. What? Dr. K told me the more I participated in my own treatment, the sooner I would be released. And that the typical stay at Brylin was about four or five days. He left my meds alone. See, all I wanted was new meds. So I got a little bummed. He'd tweak them after a few days, he said. The thought of really and truly being in this place for days on end started to bother me. What would a day be like in the mental hospital? A full day. I was about to find out. I crawled back into bed. My hot, psychotic roommate was awake, lying on his back, just staring at the ceiling, shirtless, but creepy. I didn't want to get caught looking at him, but even in my state, I couldn't resist. So I had just seen the psychiatrist, and now it's about 7 a.m., and it's getting light out, and they called us to line up to have our vitals checked. I shuffled out into the hall and lined up with the motley crew assembled near the nurse's station. There were young teenagers and elderly patients wearing hospital gowns. There was a woman who could not stop crying. I never saw her not crying. A few people were there that they called one-to-ones, as they could not be left alone. Beware the one-to-ones, I thought to myself. 
They took my blood pressure, temperature, and pulse, just like they did every morning I was there. And then I went right back to bed. What was Eric doing? Was he up? Was he thinking about me? I missed him so much that I started to cry again and went to the window. Babe, are you out there? Being away from him was unbearable. I just stood at the tinted window watching cars go by. I could probably see my house from that window. Inside, looking out was terrifying to me. I had made a fucking mistake, I thought. I've got to get the fuck out of here. How do I go about doing that? What have I done? Breakfast was at 8 a.m. I started to perk up until I realized that I had to go out and eat with the hoi polloi, some of whom just may try and kill me for my eggs. I lined up at the portable buffet table they had set up in the lounge and was startled when I heard a young woman growl out, If anybody isn't going to eat their food, I'll take it. She must have been very hungry as she was already gunning for other people's breakfasts. She was one of what I called the mean girls. There were three of them. They all had a similar look, snarl-faced with lots of eyeliner. They looked like they could cut a bitch and had. So I was extra smiley when their eyes darted over at me. I guess I didn't realize I was going to be thrown in with the general population. Or that not everyone there was demure and clinically depressed. No, some people were coming way down off crystal meth and were mandated to stay for 72 hours. Mean girls, ready to eat your waffle at the drop of a dime. At 9 a.m., they started calling people in for group. I'll tell you right now, I was not planning on going to any group. I didn't want to interact with anyone, and that was part of my anxiety. I couldn't even interact with the people I loved the most. Now I had to color with crayons sitting next to fucking Methadonna and her evil sisters. No fucking way. I went back to bed, clinging to my sheets and my rubber mattress, and I ignored every announcement. Morning stretch in five minutes. Chair Tai Chi starting in just a few minutes. Please, God, make it stop. There were a lot of chair activities, as many people who had an unsteady gait could not stand for too long. So there was chair yoga, chair massage, chair stretch. (laughs) I chose bed every time. Then I remembered that the more groups I attended, the quicker I would be set free. I reminded myself that I indeed chose to be there and didn't want to leave until the old me was back. Could chair mahjong transform me? For the rest of the first day, I stayed in bed. I refused lunch and spent a lot of time just standing at the window. I stood there looking out for hours, just like that chick from Paranormal Activity. I just stood sort of rocking back and forth in fast motion. When I wasn't rocking, I was pacing in the hallway or walking to and from the nurse's station in my socks. I was petrified, petrified to take a shower down the hall. How horrible could that even be? I'd seen the kitchen and lounge. I got walked in on going to the bathroom almost every time I went. What fresh hell awaited me in the institutional shower chamber of horrors? So I didn't shower. Smelling good. I ate my turkey roll-up and waited for visiting hours. While I was eating, I noticed that everyone else had better desserts than me. What gives? They also had lots of gravy on their turkey roll-up while mine was dry and tasteless. I asked one of the nurses why my meal was different, and she said that since I was on cholesterol medication, the doctor had put me on a restricted diet. Awesome. Not only am I all up in the bin, but I also don't get any spice cake. Life, my friends, is not fair. So I made it till 5 p.m., and it was time for my meds. I lined up behind the mean girls who were fixing for a fight. 
Give me my fucking meds, <laughs> they shouted to the poor RN, giving out pills in little cups. They were like Chiclet and Concetta, uh, Divine's best friends in female trouble. Um, excuse me, but I'm already depressed and anxious and in a mental hospital. Could you please stop scaring the living fuck out of me? Thank you. When I got my meds, the nurse actually asked me to open my mouth and lift my tongue to make sure I wasn't cheeking any of my meds. <gasps> it was so girl interrupted. I started to smile at the nurse, then laugh a little as I showed her the inside of my mouth. You're good, baby, she said and winked at me. I didn't have the strength to wink back. The old me would have winked. I had not yet arrived. Visiting hours started at 6 p.m. I stood at the window waiting for Eric to pull in the roundabout below. My husband had been put through it over the summer. I was in bed almost all of the time. I didn't go out anymore. It was scary and horrible, and I know that he was lonely. Lonely for me and how it used to be. I felt guilty and embarrassed. Married for just over a year, for better or for worse. I was flashing him the worst in grand style. When he pulled in, my heart jumped. I ran to the elevator and waited for it to open. You're not Eric. You're not Eric. You're not Eric, as the people filed out of the elevator. When Eric appeared... Behind the elevator door, I broke down. I could not see because I was crying so hard. Could not see. We sat in two chairs out in the hallway, just staring at each other, crying. We didn't say a word. I was crying so hard that I was almost gagging. I couldn't speak. I couldn't speak a single word. I loved him so much, and his being there meant so much to me, and I couldn't tell him. All I could do was sob and excuse myself to my room where I cried even harder. I was crying mostly because I knew by 8 p.m. he would have to leave and I'd be in there again alone. I tried to get a few words out, but was only shaking and stammering. He just kept saying, babe, and then he would say, babe, and then I'd say, babe. We were a hot fucking mess. Soon my parents arrived and I started to cry even harder, if that was humanly possible. My mother held me in her arms and asked, Honey, is there anything we can do to take away this pain, this sadness? All I could do was shake my head no and let her hold me in my arms. Please take me with you, I thought. I'll be better, I promise. Just don't make me stay here. I'm scared was the only thing I could say that night. At 8 p.m. when my parents and Eric left, I went to my bedroom window and saw them all walk out together down below. I know they were talking about me. I sobbed and put my hand on the window. I was bawling in a way where you almost sounded like an animal, guttural. I didn't want to wake up hottie psychotti in the bed next to mine, so I just went into the bathroom. I do know I was super loud, even though the door was closed, so I tried to pull my shit together. When I walked back out into my darkened room, one of the mean girls was standing outside my door. I was terrified. Lucky me, they lived right across the hall. Methadonna looked at me and said, Mr. Sean... It's going to be okay. Everything's going to be okay. I thanked her and went back to lie down. The sun was setting over Delaware Avenue and I was again all alone. How is this ever going to help me? Seriously, what had I done? Pause and discuss. <laughs> no, just kidding. Okay, here's part three. I never met a mic I didn't like. A while after I got out, I drove back to the hospital to take a picture of the building across the street. I pulled into the roundabout in front of Brylin and took it really fast through the window of my car. 
It's ironic that I just glanced at it and pulled away because when I was alone in my room looking out the window from my bed, this is what I saw all the time. This was my view. In the morning, the sun lit up the front of this building. There was no clock in my room, so that's how I knew what time it was, by looking at how the sun lit this building out my window. I just stared at this building for hours and what seems like days on end. Just me in bed, hugging a rubber pillow, crying and staring at this scene. When the front went dark and the sun was behind it, I knew that it was about time for visiting hours. When the front was bright and glowing, I knew that they'd be calling me for groups. This building acted like a giant brick sundial for the rest of my stay. This building was my link to the outside. At some point during the time I was visiting with Eric and my parents, Hadi Saikati was discharged. I was actually really disappointed, and his bed was stripped. What am I going to look at now? When I went to bed, I finally had my own room. I actually sort of missed him in an odd way, like he could protect me somehow with that big chest of his, just being there with his wall of hotness. Now he was gone. Let me tell you about the payphone. There was a payphone in the hallway just outside my room for people on the inside to make calls. People on the outside could call in too. The problem was that the phone was only answered by the patients, and if no one was in the mood, it just rang and rang. My dad brought me a roll of quarters so I could call whenever I wanted. The sisters' meth ruled the school, like a wild bunch of cha-cha de Gregorios. There were only three of them, but they had sort of taken over the ward and the payphone. Their payphone conversations made exciting monologues, and I found myself hanging off their every deafening word. They were so loud, I couldn't have given a shit who heard them. Talk of cheating hoes and motherfuckers and baby daddy bullshit roared into my room at extreme decibels. This went on well into the night. Even though they scared the hell out of me, I couldn't get enough of these phone conversations. There's a little bit of the old me coming back. Just as I started to fall asleep, Philippe was back. He came into my room and turned on the light. I had a new roommate. He was tall and lean, wore a camouflage baseball cap, and reeked of cigarette smoke and alcohol. His name was Mike, he told me, and came right over to my bed to shake my hand. Oh, God, how I miss the silent hottie. He and I never spoke one word to each other. Mike was ready to make nicey-nice and chat it up. It was about 1 a.m. Mike never stopped talking for the entire night. At first, he talked to me. What are you in for? <laughs> he asked like we were spending our first night in the clink. Mike was in for alcohol-related depression. His family and the police had brought him in, and he was going to be there for 72 hours. Sweet! Now please stop talking! When I pretended to be asleep, Mike talked to the nurse, paid to watch me sleep. Mike talked and talked and talked until the nurse couldn't take it anymore. I didn't hear every word, but I did catch, give me a math problem, any math problem, and I'll solve it. <laughs> and then the classic, hey, I never met a Mike I didn't like. Are you fucking kidding me? I never met a Mike I didn't like. Clever. Um, excuse me, Mike. I, I've met a Mike I didn't like. I hated Mike and would have done anything to get McHottie back with his adorable quiet psychosis. When Mike was allowed to get up at 6 a.m., he headed out to the lounge and the nurse's station where I could still hear him talking. In a place where the minutes passed like hours, the next 72 were going to be endless. After my appointment with Dr. K and my vitals were checked, I decided that I had to make the most of this. If I was going to have to be in a mental hospital, then I was going to get the most out of the experience, no matter how scared I was. 
I did it. I put my name on a list to take a shower and scurried in for my low cholesterol breakfast. Mike was there talking to anyone who would look his way. The mean girls were dumpster diving other people's trays for unwanted food. The woman who never stopped crying was there crying. They were becoming the usual suspects to me. The shower. I was given a hygiene basket with my name on it and some institutional towels and led down a long hallway to the men's shower. The shower was in the corner of a large tiled room that smelled like bleach and piss. There were no hooks anywhere. Where am I going to put my clothes on a dirty radiator? The shower itself was so skivats that I almost gagged. There was a graveyard of old bars of soap covered in other people's hair. I can handle a lot. Like, I can handle being in this institution, but other people's hair on my soap in a psych ward shower is where I draw the fucking line. I showered so fast that I barely washed. I had my eyes closed the whole time, except for... Except for when one of the nurses opened the door and shouted, Who's in here? Oh, Mr. Sean, sorry. Again, nowhere to hide. I put on my clean sweats and t-shirt and got the fuck out of there. Knowing that now at least one of the nurses had seen my junk, I held my head up high and headed back down the hall. I took a shower. It seriously had been a while. Next, I started going to groups. I did morning stretch. The mean girls were in there too, half participating, half talking about how their boyfriends liked them. Bald beaver! I just about died. I'm telling you, they had no shame. We stretched to the hits of Motown. I was supremely uncomfortable. When I went to group where we talked about setting goals, I made a long list. In the next group, we, asked, we were asked to draw a picture of a place that relaxed us. I drew the Place de Vosges in marker and crayon. I hadn't thought about our trip to Paris in a long time, how big my world was on the day we went to the Place de Vosges, and how small it had become. I really put a lot of time and detail into the picture, but I still hadn't spoken a word to anyone. Mike was there too, talking up a blue minute, but never to me, thank you Jesus. We never acknowledged each other. At the start of visiting hours, Mike's mom and dad and his wife came to see him. I was lying in bed until I saw the sun behind my building. That's when I knew I'd be seeing my Eric and my parents. Of course, I could hear Mike talking nonstop and then suddenly nothing. Mike came into the room and threw himself against the wall, threw himself against the wall, sliding down it until he was crouching. He put his head in his hands and began to sob. Um, oh, Jesus, what should I do? As I was lying there staring out the window, I calculated my next move. The sound of Mike crying was starting to break my heart. I didn't know why he was crying, but I remembered how hard it was to see my mom and dad and Eric inside the hospital and knowing that their stay was short-lived. I remembered how traumatized I was, so I asked him, Do you want me to leave? And he just kept weeping into his hands. I couldn't bear it. Mike, you're not alone. I know what you're going through, was all I could think of to say. I got out of my bed and went over to him. He just bolted up and gave me a hug, crying into my arms. There he, he cried for quite a long time. I wanted to hate Mike. I thought that with his camo hat and chatty, boozy demeanor, what could I have in common with him? I wanted to hate him, but right in that moment, I loved him and empathized with him. I knew exactly how he felt, and I shared his very specific pain. He and I were not that different at all. This place had made us the same. Maybe he was right. Maybe I indeed haven't met a Mike I didn't like. Five decisions away. 
I am no better and no worse than anyone else. I'm not less mentally ill. I'm not cooler because I've been to Paris. And I'm not more intelligent because I've gone to school. These were the thoughts I was thinking while Mike was crying into my shoulder. Who was I to judge this guy? Just one day before, I was doing the exact same thing. Then it reminded me of my favorite extreme cleaning specialist, Matt Paxton from Hoarders. Anybody here watch Hoarders? (laughs) His podcast is called Five Decisions. He came up with the title after the Hoarders team found a homeless man living in the hoard of one of the hoarders they were helping. Okay, so someone had a hoard, and then in the hoard, they found a homeless man living in that hoard. What led them to him was a big bucket full of poop. When Matt asked him how he got there, he found out that the man was once a successful broker in New York. After his girlfriend left him and broke his heart, he got hooked on crack and found himself homeless. Now he was living on the cluttered lawn of some random hoarder. It gave Matt pause. And then he said, man, we really are all just five decisions away from shitting in a bucket. Deep. What I'm saying here is this could happen to any of us. I thought of all the times I'd driven past Brylin Hospital, all fascinated and curious, thinking this could never happen to me. Cut to me, then, in lockdown on the second floor of a psychiatric hospital, hugging a man I didn't know as he soaked my t-shirt with his tears. Ah, life. Mike and I walked out onto the ward where his family had been waiting for him. Soon my visitors arrived, too. You really haven't lived until you see your own mother chatting it up with a speed freak with a face tattoo. Seemingly implausible, and yet, this place really had a way of bringing people together. Eric brought me some extra clothes and my copy of Let's Explore Owls with Diabetes by David Sedaris. It sort of legitimized me there. Earlier that day, while I was lying in bed, my social worker, Jamie, a jolly Cameron Mannheim type, brought me up some exquisite flowers that my friend had come with earlier. She had found a plastic bucket for them as glass vases were not allowed. Look, Mike, we've got flowers. Our room was really shaping up. I had my flowers. I had my book. I was happy. When Eric and my parents left that night, I watched them again out the window. But this time I didn't cry quite as hard. There was work to be done there. And I had to pull my shit together and start healing. I was not going to be in there forever. So I better get to it. On the weekend, there were visiting hours in the afternoon as well as in the evening. Two times. I bounced from group to group until it was time for me to take a shower. I wish I could replicate the sound I made every time I walked into the shower room. It's the kind of noise you make when you realize that in just a few short moments, you will be standing naked in a sea of dirty city water and other people's pubes with nowhere to hide. I wanted to fix up nice just in case I had a slew of visitors. I even brushed my hair. At 2 p.m., I ran to my perch at the window and looked down to see one of my friends walking up with a giant cupcake from Firefly Cupcakes. I met him at the elevator holding a paper plate, napkin, and a plastic spoon like an animal. I took him by surprise, and we started to laugh. Just as I finished the last of the cupcake, I saw another friend of mine standing at the nurse's station holding, wait for it, a dozen Paula's Donuts. I sprang up and ran to her. I couldn't believe it! Want to know how to turn a psych ward right on its ear? Open up a box of Paula's Donuts, and merriment ensues! The mean girl started sniffing around. The nurses had their necks craned into the lounge from their perches at the nurse's station. The woman who never stopped crying, stopped crying, albeit for just a moment. People were staring at me like I had opened a suitcase full of $100 bills. 
What are those? barked Methadonna. They're Paula's donuts. Would you like? And before I knew it, she was helping herself to a fritter. In just a matter of moments, I had become the most popular boy in the mental hospital. I offered one of the nurses who, not three days before, was examining my hair for weapons, an ex-con who was on the phone, and of course, my new best friend, Mike. The ward was a buzz. Just as the whole gang was feasting on these donuts, my mom and dad walked in with a bag of, you guessed it, more Paula's donuts. This was unreal. I was having the best time, laughing, eating donuts. I forgot where I was for a moment. I introduced Mike to my family, and he introduced me to his. Now I had my book, flowers, lots of donuts, and a bunch of new friends. By that night, I was arranging and rearranging my flowers, reading, writing in the journal that Jamie had given me. I was busy. By the time the second string of visitors came, because that was only the afternoon, I had a bounce in my step. We all sat around a big table, pulling up chairs as the next person arrived. At first, people don't know how to act when they're visiting you in a mental hospital. Everyone was being very measured and careful. But then I started talking about Methadonna and her gang of tweakers, which started off as a rather solemn event, soon became me telling stories and a bunch of us laughing and carrying on. One of my friends said, God, it's like the old Sean is back. And for the first time in what seemed like forever, I wasn't anxious at all. What was it about this place that made me suddenly feel so safe that I could just be myself again? That night as I was lying in bed, I kept asking myself the same question over and over again. In a place where there were virtually no stressors and no demands, where all the attention was on me and my healing, I felt miles away from the panic of going to work, going to social events, laundry piling up around me. Here, everything was taken care of. Could this be? No. I was actually starting to like it in there. Pause and discuss. <laughs> uh, is this weird? I don't know. Okay. Sit happens. We are about to find out how Stella got her groove back. Remember when the nurse winked at me and said, you're good, baby, after checking my mouth for pills and I couldn't even wink back? My friend Daniel says that's when I started my way back. That's when the total stranger saw the humanity in me I thought I had lost. Why did I feel safe being me inside the hospital all of a sudden, but outside of it, I had not been me for months? Did I like it in there? I still paced and cried and stayed in bed a good deal of the time. Don't get me wrong. Those things aren't exactly the hallmarks of liking it somewhere, right? Something incredible happened that night in the lounge of Brylin. I felt like myself for the first time since probably the beginning of May. It was now late August. Even though the moment was fleeting, it was real, and I was determined to make it happen again. During the admission process, I was asked more than one time what my goal was in checking myself into the hospital. My answer never changed. I wanted to be me again. But how could this happen? How could painting with watercolors and reading articles on mindfulness turn me back into Sean? Dr. K had changed up my meds, but even that takes weeks to show any real effect. I knew I would still be in the hospital by the time they started to kick in. Exactly how long was this going to take? My social worker, Jamie, spent a lot of time with me talking about what I would do when I left Brylin. Leave Brylin? I say it like an old 40s actress. Even though I had leave Brylin? <laughs> so much fun, I'll say it twice. Even though I hated every shower, meth-induced cat fight, and low-cholesterol meal, I was not ready to leave. I remembered my goal. 
I want to be me again. That had yet to occur, only in that fleeting moment. I was desperate to get out of the hospital, and I was also desperate to stay in the hospital. Conundrum! By Monday morning, I met with Dr. K. I made a terrible mistake. I told him I was feeling really great. What was I thinking? I was so jazzed about my visiting hours triumph the night before, so high off of that two hours of being the old me, I couldn't wait to tell him. I said shit like, I haven't felt like this in months, and I was myself again. Something really must be working, because I feel better than I have felt in a long time. Shut up, Sean. This is not how you get better drugs. I asked him if he thought that my med rationale made sense. I'd prepared that question, and if he thought it was going to work. Of course, how could he know? He told me I was on a good combination of meds, and that clearly the groups had been working. Dr. K, usually stone-faced, looked pleased. At this rate, I don't see you staying here much longer. You can go home on Wednesday. Wednesday? Shit. Fuck. I take it all back. I'm not ready, I thought to myself. Cool, I said, like a giant asshole. I now only had about two days to finish the job here. I wanted to barf. I threw myself right back into bed and waves of panic came rushing over me. This huge dilemma kept running through my head. I hate it here, but I don't want to leave. I hate it here, but I don't want to leave. I hate it here, but I don't want to leave. I thought when I go home, I have to face catching up at work, driving, which I had become petrified to do, especially at night, piles of filthy clothes, stacks of mail. I couldn't do it. Please, God, don't make me leave on Wednesday. (laughs) How about nice Thursday? Yeah, Thursday would be nice. One more day and I'll have this licked. Oh, Jesus, Mary and Joseph, please help me. Monday was also a sad day because it was a day that the mean girls were being discharged. You should have seen them putting on their makeup in the mirror outside the nurse's station. There were no actual real mirrors at Brylin, just pieces of dull-edged reflective metal that were like funhouse mirrors. They distorted your face in every direction. Nothing like seeing yourself all screwed up and stretched to boost one's self-esteem while in the bin. With all their screaming and fighting... I had no idea there was a fourth person in the room with the sister's meth. A fourth person, just like that guy that lived in the horde. Suffering through their tirades was a small, kind, beautiful woman named Deb. I could tell she was coming and going by the sound of her flip-flops, but I had no idea she was actually rooming with these chicas. Deb came to my door while I was lying there, conundruming, and introduced herself. Hi, I'm Deb. She asked me if I wanted to go to lunch with her. I didn't. But I got up and shuffled to the door to introduce myself. Deb was in the hospital for the same reasons I was. She told me that she was going to try to make the most of it now that the tweakers were leaving. If I changed my mind, she said, I could meet her in the lounge. With that, I threw myself back into my bed. When I became anxious, bed was the only place that I felt safe. And now that I was faced with leaving the hospital before I turned back into me, bed was the only place I wanted to be. Until I met Deb. If Mike taught me that we were all just five decisions away, Deb taught me about gratitude, and this is huge. I ended up going to groups with her that day, and we quickly became inseparable. We laughed about her being trapped in the hell that was her roommate situation. We cried together when we talked about our husbands and how much we wished we could be with them again. She even smuggled me some onion rings from her dinner plate. That's really what won me over. Now that's a true friend. Suddenly it became all about, where was Deb? What's Deb doing? Is Deb here? Sean, you have a phone call. The words were like sweet, sweet music. Me? A phone call in the hospital? Why, who could it be? 
I would literally leap out of bed and slide to the phone in my socks to hear my mom, my dad, or Eric, or one of my amazing friends was such a gift. Deb kept telling me, you sure do have a lot of friends. You're really lucky. When visiting hours started, Deb and I would set up for our friends and family in the lounge. Her parents, husband, and son came to visit every night. One night, they started a movie in the lounge, just as the visitors were starting to arrive. How stupid is this? Why would they start a movie when they know that our visitors would be arriving at the exact same time, I asked. One of the girls I had met, Hannah, glared at me and said, Maybe it's for people like me who don't have any fucking visitors. Maybe that's why. Jesus, I had never thought of that. What a tool I was. Not only didn't some people ever have one single visitor for the entirety of their stay, some people actually didn't want to see their families, as they were the cause of great pain for them. How could I be so stupid? Here I am holding court, acting like the psych lounge is my own personal drawing room, never once thinking about what it would be like to have 6 p.m. come, wait for the elevator door to open, and not have one visitor. I was a little more sedate that night while I told my posse that I was going home soon. Are you ready? Um, no. I mean, yes, sure. I've got to leave sometime, right? I'm ready. No, I'm not ready. My mom could tell I was more than apprehensive. You'll know when it's the right time to go. So don't feel the pressure to leave if you're not sure that you're absolutely ready, she said. Moms know everything. And mine knew I was not ready and scared shitless. I hugged and kissed everybody goodbye, watched the elevator door close on people I loved, just like I did every night. Then, of course, I started to cry. It had become a ritual. Deb came over to me and gave me a hug. You are so loved. We should both be grateful we have such amazing friends and family. So many people here don't have anyone. We're terribly fortunate, you know? Deb, that's it! In all the excitement of being there, (laughs) I forgot about gratitude. That night, as I was lying in bed in what was now an almost silent hallway with the methylenas gone and all and Mike being gone, I started making my list in my head of everything I was grateful for. My husband, Eric, my parents, my friends, Paula's donuts. The list went on and on and suddenly it hit me. I was at peace when I was being grateful. When you're busy being grateful for everything you're lucky enough to have, there's very little room for fear or pain. Timber Hawkeye, who wrote Buddhist Boot Camp, which I highly recommend, prescribes gratitude as medicine for people to heal themselves from the inside out. Effexor, Zoloft, Latuda, and Xanax. They ain't bad either, but once I started falling asleep to my gratitude list, as cheeseball as it sounds, the stronger I felt. Maybe if I stopped pursuing, stopped chasing happiness, and realized that I already had so much, my anxiety would start to go away. I felt like it that night with my visitors. Could I take that feeling with me outside the hospital? Could gratitude be the answer? Being in the hospital was giving me a chance to completely unplug and in a way to reboot. It gave me a chance to slow down enough to really take an inventory of the things in my life worth appreciating. Timber Hawkeye calls it sit happens. Taking the time to ease up and really think about what you are grateful for. When you're locked in a mental hospital, a lot of sit happens. There was plenty of time. And so I turned my focus towards gratitude. Wednesday. I could leave on Wednesday. Would I be ready to go back to real life in just a couple days? The angel of death. (laughs) 
When I checked myself into the hospital, it wasn't because I wanted to die. See, I actually felt like I had already died. I'm going to read that again because it's pretty profound. When I checked myself into the hospital, it wasn't because I wanted to die. See, I actually felt like I had already died. I wasn't living at all, not participating in my own life in any way. It's like I was dead and just lying in bed, wasting away. That's why I really didn't care if I lived or died or if I didn't wake up in the morning. I felt like I was already dead. It's hard for me to talk about these things, and it's probably hard for you to listen to them, too. The hospital was my last hope. If this didn't work, nothing would, honestly. Now I only had a little more than a full day to get back to being the old Sean. Being away from responsibilities, demands, and expectations of any kind other than not checking my meds (laughs) had given me time to let sit happen and really do some thinking. This was a place where there was time enough to heal. So what if I stayed a few extra days? My social worker, Jamie, asked me, really, what are a few extra days in here going to change for you? And I had no idea. I just knew that Wednesday was careening toward me and I didn't know if I could leave. My answer came in the form of an angel. Not the kind you're thinking of, but just a tiny angel ornament my friend Kelly brought me. When she arrived at the nurse's station, the head nurse inspected the bag of little gifts Kelly had brought me. There were three rocks with the words hope, love, and peace on them. Yeah, you know those aren't making it in. Weapons! This tiny angel ornament from 10,000 Villages, a shop that sells handcrafted fair trade gifts, had a smock made of dried orange peel. Oh no, that ain't going anywhere. Like it was a machete or an axe. It was really a dress made of dried orange peel. The head nurse examined this teensy angel from top to bottom and identified the string, a veritable noose, and the orange peel, too sharp, as just too risky. I said, yeah, it's It's from 10,000 villages, though, like she gave a shit. Are you kidding me? Kelly laughed as they took the rocks and ornament and locked it in the sharps drawer. The best part is that she brought the angel because it symbolized love and friendship forever, only to be told it was considered a weapon and banned. Honestly, if I had the ingenuity to figure out how to off myself using a fair trade angel ornament, then I should be a one to one and in a hurry. My time there was done. I can't explain to you what it was that made me so sure of this, but what I really wanted for something to crack this depression had happened. Brylin broke it wide open. We were laughing so hard about the angel of death, as I called her, that my sides hurt. I was laughing again. I turned my focus to gratitude. I realized that all of us, no matter who we are or where we come from, are broken somehow. Everybody has a story. Mine was no better or worse than anyone else's. Cracking up about the angel ornament let me know I was ready to be home, to safely hang it where I could see it. It would always remind me of the moment I realized it was time to go. Tuesday was arduous, as it was the day before Wednesday, which, as you know, was my discharge. I hate that word. (laughs) Discharge. Day. Mike went home the night before. We hugged and he said, of course, see you on the outside. Oh, Jesus. Deb and I still went to meetings, even though we weren't really getting credit anymore. We were both going home on the next day. For the rest of the day and into the evening, I had what they call in the biz racing thoughts or rapid thought patterns just to zoom in through your mind so fast that normal thought can't get a word in. 
What if I got home and went right back to bed? What if I get fired? What if the anxiety returns? What if my meds don't kick in? What if I'm not the old me? So many what ifs. Deb could tell I was the hottest of hot messes and reassured me. So maybe all of that could happen. Live in the moment. Live in this moment. You are becoming well. You've outgrown this place and it's time to go. Your life is waiting for you out there. To quote my friend Scott, with little exception, mostly people named Deb are as cool as hell. (laughs) It's so fucking true. My Deb was no exception. She finished by saying, and maybe you'll never be the old you again, but a new you. One who comes out from this braver, stronger, and filled with gratitude. Another friend had said to me, remember, the old Sean you are trying to get back had all that baggage you've worked so hard to get rid of. I want to tell you, it is okay if things never get back to the old way. We all grow, change, and evolve. I've got some really smart friends. It is okay if things never get back to the old way. I kept telling myself that as Tuesday quickly became Wednesday, the day I was going home. Early that morning, I rolled over to find yet another roommate that Philippe must have snuck in while I was sleeping. This guy was fully clothed and still wearing his boots in bed. As I went through what now had become my morning ritual, I kept repeating what my friends had said over and over. It's okay if things never get back to the old way. I'll be okay no matter what. Jamie had set up an appointment for me that very afternoon with my own psychiatrist at 2.30, a decent hour. I would be leaving around one after she and I came up with what they call a safety plan for when and if I'm teetering on the brink again. Eric left work early to come spring me from the bin. I packed up what little I had brought and stripped my bed, revealing the rubber mattress and pillow I'd been sleeping on. That sure didn't stop me, though, from laying right back down on it. I did not want to go. Nothing could stop me from getting into that bed. I was nervous. Deb stood at the door and said, what the hell are you doing? Sleeping on a rubber bed? I should get up, right? It was funny and sad all at once. I was clinging to this place with all my might. In just a couple hours, I'd be back on what Mike dramatically called the outside. Eric arrived. Other than looking down the aisle at him, all dressed up in his tux the day we got married, I had never been so happy to see him. Deb and I promised to continue to take care of each other after we were out and said goodbye. And we have. All the nurses made such a fuss. Bye, Mr. Sean. Thanks for the donut, Mr. Sean. They were amazing and kind. Jamie had Eric sign several papers and reviewed my safety plan with him. Right as the elevator door opened, one of the nurses, Tiffany, told me she wished that all the patients were like me and gave me a wink. And I winked back. The final installment is called We Can Do It! Full of plucky optimism. Eric and I have a bunch of little ditties we sing to each other. Whenever I feel stuck or anxious about something, Eric sings the chorus of the song We Can Do It from the producers, and I instantly feel better. Actually, we've been singing We Can Do It to each other since before we were married, in times when we needed extra encouragement or when we really didn't want to do something. We can do it. We can do it. We can do it if we try. We can do it. There's nothing to it. Much like the song, Could We Start Again, Please, just a couple of lines from We Can Do It have been like hitting a reset button for us. And in the last few months, especially for me, Eric just texted me this picture this morning. Show Queens! It's a picture of uh, Nathan Lane and uh, Matthew Broderick. There's no way I could have come out of this depression without my husband, Eric. 
He has a rare combination of sharp intelligence and true guileless optimism. When I was in the hospital, I missed him so much the pain was visceral. How can I ever, ever begin to thank him? He spent hours just lying with me in bed before I went into the hospital, just so I and he wouldn't have to be lonely. He texted me throughout the day, checking in on me, reminding me that I can indeed do it. We hugged every morning because he had heard that hugs can lessen anxiety. Mm. Eric told me how proud he was of me, even when I made it through a full day of work and when I managed to go in for a few days in a row. He had been my cheerleader, my motivation, my bright light at the end of a very long, very dark tunnel. When I look at him, I see the rest of my life, a life where I know I am safe and wanted and loved with no conditions. Eric allows me to believe that together... We can do it. The other night, my dad told me that he, too, was reading my blog, which terrified me. Terrified me. <laughs> it's like naming all the drugs you've been on in front of your mother. He prints the blog out afterwards so that my mother, who still treats computers as if they are filled with black magic and spellbinding voodoo, can read it. Not once did they ever let me see them upset or cry. My parents were always positive, always there for me, and showed me that no matter how I was feeling, they loved me just the same. My dad said, you know who else was really great at the hospital? The man you had to sign in with at the front desk. When he looked at the visitors list, he looked up at me and said, Mr. Doyle, your son sure does have a lot of visitors. Don't worry. Once he realizes how loved he is, he'll be all better. You have really wonderful friends, Shawnee. My dad is never wrong, by the way. I do have the most staggeringly awesome friends, and this man was right. As soon as I started to remember how loved I was, I began to heal. Gratitude has managed to help me start to undo every negative feeling I had. By returning to gratitude every time I get anxious or start to get depressed, those feelings begin to disappear. How grateful I am for Eric and his seemingly limitless ability to love me. Being in the mental hospital made me grateful not only for my friends and family, but for fresh air, for how soft my own pillow is, or how nice it is not to have to eat dinner knowing that any moment a speed freak might bogart my sun chips. When the anxiety returns, and it does, and it always will, I just start a tally of everything I'm grateful for. It's so very simple, but how often we forget how fucking lucky we are. I've chosen to focus on what I do have rather than what I do not. I'm learning to distance myself from my depression and anxiety, too, using all sorts of things I've learned in therapy. Diffusion is one trick I've learned. Diffusion or distancing from letting go of unhelpful thoughts, beliefs, or feelings takes practice, and I practice every day. I try not to attend to my anxiety and fear. Here's a story, a Cherokee story of the two wolves. A fight is going on inside me, the man told a young boy. A terrible fight between two wolves. One is evil, full of anger, sorrow, regret, fear, self-pity, and false pride. The other is good, full of joy, peace, love, humility, kindness, and faith. This same fight is going on inside of you, grandson, and inside of every other person on this earth. The grandson ponders this for a moment and then asks, Grandfather, which wolf will win? The old man smiled and simply said, 
the one you feed. I'm very careful about which wolf I choose to feed when I start to get anxious and depressed. I'm reading this to you now five years later, almost to the day that I was in Brylin, and I still have to make a conscious decision which wolf I'm going to feed. It never ends. Even though there's very little left in me of the man I became over this past summer, I still fight this demon every day, the Babadook. Who knows why this happened when it did. After 42 years, maybe my body and mind just needed a vacation. Maybe my meds just stopped working or my chemistry changed. No matter. I'm learning to love myself when I am sick and panicked and obsessing, just as I love myself when I am well and witty and wonderful. The story doesn't end. This is only the beginning. Accepting that I just happen to be a guy who has depression and anxiety and accepting them when they happen also helps me to undermine these feelings. Instead of fighting them, I try to make room for them. I feed them worms, just like Amelia fed the Babadook, and I allow them to come and go without a struggle. That really fucks with this two-headed beast called anxiety and depression. I have lived with this monster for my entire life, and only now am I learning that depression lies. It's been said that you can't feel great joy without feeling great pain. Having this illness has made me who I am today, and I'm glad about who I am. If you're going through something like I went through, remember that there is nothing, nothing to be ashamed of. Get help. Talk about it. Talk to me about it. You're not alone. My email address is Sean, S-H-A-U-N, 72I, as in India, at yahoo.com. If ever you want to talk, I'm there for you. You are not alone. Just remember that together, we can begin to recover from even the deepest depression. We can do it. We can do it. We can do it. We can do it if we try. We can do it. There's nothing to it. I don't know the rest of the words. Thank you.